0: This is Tailgate Till May, part of the Believe Podcast Network. If you love college sports and you like to have a little action on the games... Then this is the place for you because I'm your host Stephen Gorgie, and I love both of those things too. I'm excited to be back for another episode. I'm gonna recap the weekend that was in college basketball. It was a fun one. There was all sorts of games. You had high-paced, up-tempo games. You had classic UVA slow it down, grind it out type of games. You had that one with UVA and North Carolina. You had a little bit of everything. You had buzzer beaters. You had big shots. It was a really fun weekend of college basketball, and I'm excited to get into it all. Before I do that, just a reminder, you can find me on social media across all platforms, at Gorg On Sports. That's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Follow me there, At Gorgon Sports. Twitter is where I post each and every one of my college basketball bets. And as far as how I did this weekend, not the greatest weekend in the world. On Saturday, I had a, a tough two and four. Record on the day down 1.1 units. Had a couple that came close, fell short. I had one Texas plus seven and a half, that was nowhere close at all. So two and four on Saturday, down just over a unit. Sunday, a little bit better. Started off the day two and oh on the Maryland Ruckers, uh, under and then UAB money line at Tulane that was plus 120. That one hit and right now i'm waiting out the result of nebraska minnesota had the over in that one not looking very good considering they scored like 50 combined points at halftime not even 48 combined points at halftime so i will probably use, lose that one but uh so should go 2 and 1 on the day for sunday so just below 500 On the weekend. Okay, enough with the administrative stuff here. Let's get into this thing. And let's start with the very top of the sport because I thought there were some interesting things that took place at the very top. Start with the number one team in the country, UConn. They beat Villanova at home on a Saturday night, 78-54. to A nice bounce-back win there for UConn after dropping a game. They now sit 25-3, 15-2 in conference. Tristan Newton drops a triple-double on the Wildcats. And what looked to be, I was thinking, a good year two for Villanova under Kyle Neptune, a year where they would kind of get back on track a little bit villanova sits now at eight and eight in the big east and they don't look like a tournament team to me at all just by the eye test they don't look like a tournament team at all i mean they're still in consideration you could make a case for them because they've won some big games but it's looking more and more unlikely that villanova will be in the tournament but that's not the story here the story is yukon dropping a game and then bouncing back in a big way, much like Purdue did earlier in the week with its win over Ohio State. UConn falls to Creighton, their first loss in quite some time, and they bounce back with a blowout win over Villanova. And UConn, as if there was any question, I think is pretty clearly one of the top three teams in this sport. To me, it is UConn, It is Houston, and it is Purdue. Those three teams have clearly separated themselves throughout this regular season. So let's get to Houston, because I thought they were involved in the game of the day. Houston survives Baylor, 82-76 on the road in overtime. And this was the best game of the day to me. I was locked into every second of this one. I couldn't look away from it. Just a fantastic basketball game. I couldn't get enough of it. And Houston jumps out to a big lead in this one. Quite honestly, I thought they had put this one away by halftime because they were blowing Baylor out. They were up 41-25 at halftime. The way the game was going, that 16-point lead felt like it was about a 30-point lead. Houston was getting to the basket at will. They were forcing turnovers. Their defense always feeds their offense, but particularly so in this first half. And then even when they weren't forcing turnovers, I just thought they did a really nice job of moving the basketball, getting to the bucket, and then hitting outside shots when they needed to. And to me, it was the most impressive offensive half I've seen from Houston all season long. And then Baylor comes charging back in the second half. Baylor puts up 44 points in the second half. Eve Misi, with Baylor down by two, their freshman big man, has had a really nice season. He makes a shot goes to the line and one with a chance to put Baylor up by one with just a few seconds left, misses the free throw. Houston comes down the court, and Jamal Shedd, who was likely to be an All-American, almost certain to be first-team All-Big 12, a Big 12 Player of the Year candidate, hits what appears to be the game-winning three. Lo and behold, the ball left his hand just after the buzzer, and we go to overtime. And in overtime, Baylor comes out, Baylor scores first. It's like, how is Houston after losing a lead? I don't even want to say blowing a lead because it didn't feel like a blown lead. But after losing a lead in a game where they appeared to have control very early, after looking what appeared to be a buzzer beating three to get out of there the win, how are they going to go into overtime and figure out a way to win this thing? And Baylor comes out. Ray J Dennis, who had a very nice second half, their point guard makes a shot to put Baylor up. And it's like, okay, it seems like Baylor is going to win this one, but it was not to be the case. Houston finds a way. They get the win 82 76 in overtime. And honestly in overtime overtime, Baylor felt like they made a lot of mistakes. There was one sequence early in that overtime where Baylor got an offensive rebound, missed a three, got an offensive rebound, missed another three. And then they had two guys well positioned to get the ball. There was a miscommunication and neither of them really went for it. Houston ultimately ends up with the ball. It's a, it's a scramble situation. Houston ends up with the ball. Baylor fouls, right? That's a, a, a miscue there. Uh, they had some turnovers in that overtime. Uh, there was a sequence where Eve Messi was going up for what looked to be an easy layup, an easy dunk, and inexplicably lost the ball. There was some. There, there was a lot of mistakes made by Baylor in that overtime. However, I think you have to give Houston credit for going on the road and finding a way to win. And to me, wins matter. If you listen to me at all during football season, I think you know that because I was a big proponent of the fact that I thought Florida State had earned their way in to the college ball playoff. And Houston now sitting at 24-3, and 11-3 in what is clearly the best league in college basketball at every chance has proven themselves. They have won at almost every turn. The, the only game you can look at this whole season where like Houston didn't show up, Houston didn't play its best, was on the road at Allen Fieldhouse where they got blown out. And they and, and you look at the final score of that game, it's like, wow, that felt like a 30-point loss. It was only 13 in that game. That is the one game where they have really not found a way to get it done. Their other two losses, back-to-back road losses to Iowa State and TCU, the Iowa State loss is a four-point loss. The TCU loss is a one-point loss. Yeah, they lost those games, but it's not like, You're not going to look at those games and think, okay, Houston didn't show up. Houston, what they have done this season has been super impressive to me. And with Houston, what I think is interesting is we talk so much when it comes to winning postseason basketball about the importance of guards. It's a guards game. You got to have guards. You got to have guys who can handle the ball. And Houston's defense is so good, we ignore the fact that really they are a guard-oriented team when it comes to the offense. Their top three usage guys are Jamal Shedd, their point guard, LJ Cryer, their shooting guard, Emmanuel Sharp, their three, and then Damian Dunn, one of the guards who comes off the bench for them. That's their top four usage guys. They're all guards. This is not a big-oriented team. This is a guard-oriented team, And Jamal Shed, you look at his impact on both sides of the court, and he does it all. He's a guy that's been impressive all season long. He's the heart and soul of that team. He's a senior. He's been there. He's not a transfer. He's been there for, this is his fourth year. He's a true senior. He's been there for four years. He's been through everything at Houston. He's been a part of a lot of really good teams there. And this is clearly his team. He's the heart and soul of this team but he doesn't have to do it alone because LJ Cryer is a great scorer, the transfer from Baylor, and he really showed up big in this game. He goes 3 of 7 from beyond the arc, puts up 15 points in this one. He goes back to Waco and has a really nice, really big game. And LJ Cryer is a guy who I thought could be a difference maker for them, put them over the top offensively, and he's come up big over the course of Big 12 play. He's been a little bit inconsistent, but he's had big games, at important times for Houston. And then another guy who had a big game yesterday was Emmanuel Sharp. He puts up 18 points in this one, and I feel like when you talk about how far Houston will go in the tournament, I know what I'm going to get out of Jamal Shedd. It comes down to Emmanuel Sharp, LJ Cryer, and Damian Dunn. What are those guys going to do in the tournament? Can one of them step up? Can one of them make outside shots? And I I like what I'm seeing out of them right now. I like what I'm seeing out of them in the most important moments, in the biggest games. And I think Houston still has questions offensively because how they looked in the second half of that game was very different than how they looked in the first half of that game, but I felt like there was a lot to like for Houston coming out of this one, including the game that Emmanuel Sharp played, including the game that LJ Cryer played. You always know with Houston, the defense is going to be there. You know, Jamal Shedd is going to be there. Like I said earlier, I think he's an All-American. I think he's he's an All-American. I think he's probably, it's him and Hunter Dickinson for Big 12 Player of the Year, in my opinion, and you know what you're going to get out of Jamal Shett. The question becomes LJ Cryer, Emmanuel Sharp, Damian Dunn. And based on yesterday, I think you have to feel pretty good about it. So Houston has been a bit left out of this mix, this Purdue-UConn mix. But when you look at what traditionally wins in the postseason, it's guards, guards, guards. And as good as... As good as Braden Smith has been for Purdue this year, it's Zach Eady. Zach Eady is the guy offensively. Everything runs through Zach Eady. Everything runs through the big. That's not the case at Houston. UConn is guard-oriented, certainly, with Newton, Spencer, and Castle. They played through Donovan Klingon a bit. They played through Alex Carabin a bit, but they're certainly more guard-oriented. Look, I like all three of these teams. I think these teams... Have uh I think these three teams have separated them, themselves from the rest of the pack. And then you ask yourself, what who does something elite among that group? Houston has the best defense in the country. Hands down. I don't even think it's a question. Tennessee could be in the conversation, but I think it's Houston hands down. Their number one adjusted defense efficiency in Ken Palm. I think they're the best defense in the country. And then you look at what wins in the tournaments. They have the guards. Houston has the guards. And I think that's something that is being a little bit overlooked with the Cougars here, even as they are on the verge of winning the best league in college basketball outright. So, a, a nice win for Houston this weekend. And then you have Purdue, who gets an 84-76 win at Michigan on Sunday. They bounce back. This was their second game after uh dropping that one to Ohio State. They crushed Rutgers earlier in the week. They get back on they, they get another win today against the worst team in the Big Ten. Zach Eady, 35 points, 15 boards. To me, those are pretty clearly the three best teams in college basketball. I don't think there's much of an argument there. And those teams are almost assuredly going to be number one seeds. So now the question becomes, and I talked about it a little bit on our weekend preview show, who is that fourth number one seed? Well, you look at the betting odds right now, and Arizona is the team that is is favored to get that fourth number one seed. Arizona's minus one forty to get a no- number one seed. Then right behind them, Tennessee plus two thirty. Then interestingly enough. Iowa State plus 800 UNC plus 900 Alabama plus 950 Marquette who picked up a another blowout win this afternoon plus 1600 Duke plus 2900 and Kansas plus 4200 42 to one. I looked at this long and hard today because a lot of these teams and I'll run through it really quickly Arizona gets a, a nice bounce back win after dropping one to Washington State. They're back in the driver's seat for sole, in sole possession of the Pac-12 uh, with the opportunity to win the Pac-12 outright. Washington State falls over the weekend. Arizona picks up a victory. And my question with them, I just can't trust them that they're going to show up every single night. I don't believe they're going to win the Pac-12 tournament. They also, on their their schedule the rest of the way, they will not have a single quad one opportunity the rest of the way. Now, they're number three in the net right now. They're seven and three in quad one games. They look like they're going to win the Pac-12, even though a few days ago it looked like they were not because they had had gotten swept by Washington State. Now, Arizona 12 and four in the league, Washington State 12 and five in the league. If Arizona goes out, well, let's, I don't know. I don't necessarily think Arizona controls its own destiny because let's look at the next team on that list. Tennessee has the next best odds of earning a number one seed at plus 230. Now, Tennessee, you look at Tennessee's schedule the rest of the way, and Tennessee over the weekend picks up a blowout win over Texas A&M, uh, not even close in that one. Tennessee wins 86 to, 50, to 51. They're now 11 and 3 in the SEC. You look at their schedule the rest of the way. They have Auburn, Alabama, South Carolina, and Kentucky. For my money, they play the next four best teams in the conference. So they got a tough schedule there but it gives them a ton of opportunity because Alabama is number six in the net. Auburn is number seven in the net. Kentucky is number 19 in the net. And then South Carolina is 47 in the net. So they play two top 10 teams, three top 25 teams, and four top 50 teams. If they sweep those four games and then they go and they win the SEC tournament, I think they control their own destiny. I think they are the team that's going to get that fourth number one seat. Now that's a tall task, right? I mean that's that's not easy to go out and and do that. Do what they have to do. All four of those will be quad one games. But they control their own destiny. Because if they win those four games, Tennessee will be 25 and 6 on the year. They'll be eight and five in quad one games right now. They're four and five. And I think that's the thing that's holding them back. And then you think about whoever they would beat in the SEC tournament. They'd probably get at least two more quad one wins there. I think Tennessee does control its own destiny right now. And they're looking really, really good. And the SEC had an interesting weekend. We'll certainly get to Kentucky's big win over Alabama in a minute here. But I think, Tennessee is the team that I would bet on to progress the furthest in the NCAA tournament out of the SEC. I think that they are the most well-equipped team in the SEC to advance and progress through the NCAA tournament. So, but at plus 230, I don't love it. If they were at plus 800, like Iowa State, plus 900, like North Carolina, I would be much more inclined to bet on Tennessee, even five to one. I would put a little little cash down on Tennessee. At plus 230, I don't like it. Iowa State at plus 800, look, they've had a great season. I like this Iowa State team a lot. Their non-conference schedule is not good enough. I do not believe that they are going to get a number one seed with that non-conference schedule. I don't have it up in front of me. I thought I had the tab up here with, uh, with the team sheets, and what everybody's non-conference strength of schedule is, their their, you know, everything that the selection committee actually looks at, uh, but their their non-conference just was not good enough. They have some really good wins in conference. Their computer numbers are good. They're sitting at number eight in net. Uh, they are twelve in Ken Palm, but. Their non-conference strength of schedule is 332nd. It's just not good enough, and I think that's what's going to ultimately hold them back. Now, I, as y'all know, I bet Kansas already at 19 to one to win or to earn a number one seed. I bet that a few weeks ago. Now at 42 to one, I'm tempted to take it again because what I still believe about Kansas is what they did in the non-conference is going to pay big dividends for them. Because if you look at their team sheet, in the non-conference, they've beaten UConn, and they've beaten Tennessee. They've beaten what is sure to be a number one seed, and they've beaten a team that they are competing with for a number one seed. They've also beaten Houston at home, a team that is sure to be a number one seed. They play Houston again. They have a chance to beat them again. So they've beaten number one, 4, 5, 14 is Marquette, 16 is Baylor, and 19, Kentucky. They have, they have six wins over teams in the top 20 of the net. Kansas, when you just stack up their wins, only Purdue compares. Only Purdue compares to what they have. Now, the thing that's holding Kansas back is their road record. They're three and five on the road. They have not been the same team away from home uh, as they have been at Allen Fieldhouse. And you know what? I would put more money down on Kansas at 42 to one, but, 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 they are possibly going to be missing a huge part of their team, Kevin McCuller, for a while. He didn't play in their win over Texas. On Saturday, it's the reason why I bet Texas plus seven and a half is because I knew they were going to be where his status was up in the air. It looked unlikely he was going to play. I wanted to get some money down on Texas. It didn't work out. Kansas respond great. They won 86-67. Nicholas Timberlake, a guy who was a really highly touted transfer from Towson. They thought he was going to be a big part of this team. He really hasn't been this year. He had a really nice game in McCullough's absence. And Bill Self's quotes after the game about Kevin McCuller and his status are concerning. He says, quote, well, my concern is will he play again this year? It's not a day-to-day deal. It's a week-to-week deal, end quote. That's concerning. Self went on to say that he won't play on Tuesday in their game on Tuesday. Uh, and with McCuller's status being so up in the air, I just cannot bring myself to put more money down on them despite those really, really juicy odds there. So to me, this is the biggest storyline that I'm interested in that I'm watching the rest of the season is who is going to earn that fourth number one seed? Who is going to do it? Can Arizona hold on to it? I don't know. I don't know that they control their own destiny. I really don't, because I think Tennessee has too much in front of them, too much opportunity. North Carolina is another interesting one because the Pac-12 and the ACC are rated really very similarly. They, neither conference is having the greatest year, and I think the committee probably looks at those conferences in a very similar light. North Carolina has one huge opportunity in front of them. They have the Duke game. They have Duke on the road. They've already beaten Duke at home, and they have Duke on the road. But that's really their that's their only quad one game left the rest of the season. So this is the number one storyline to me. Now, we just talked about Tennessee, how much I like them in the NCAA tournament, but how hard their schedule is. And because of that, I put in a new future bet on the SEC regular season title. And Alabama coming off a blowout loss in Rupp Arena to Kentucky is plus 130 to win the SEC. Now you look at the SEC standings right now: Tennessee, Alabama tied at eleven and three; Auburn and South Carolina, a game behind each, uh, at ten and four. We've talked about Tennessee's schedule already. Alabama, they have Ole Miss on the road. They have they host Tennessee. They go on the road to Florida, and they have Arkansas at home. Ken Palm projects them to finish out the season fourteen and four. He projects Tennessee to go 13-5, and five, Auburn to go 13-5, and five, South Carolina to go 12-6. and six. Just based on Tennessee's schedule and based on the fact that Alabama has Tennessee at home, I like Alabama to win the league. And now something to just note, and I put this bet in on FanDuel plus 130, uh, and if you go to the house rules from FanDuel, it's important to, to note, so for conference regular season winners, uh, if multiple teams are deemed co-regular season champions, bets will be settled based on the team who was awarded the top conference seat. So it comes down to seating, right? If two teams split for the title, the team you bet on gets second, you don't win anything. you lose your bet. So it's important to note here. But I think just based on the schedules and based on the fact that Alabama has Tennessee at home, I think they are in a good position to finish a game ahead of them. Alabama lost to Tennessee on the road earlier in the year. They now host them in Tuscaloosa next Saturday. I think they win that game. The game I I really think I could see Alabama dropping is Florida on the road. So that'll be a tricky one. But just based on how difficult Tennessee's schedule is, I like Alabama. Now, Alabama got blown out. They gave up 117 to Kentucky over the weekend. And Kentucky... Wow, they they are must watch basketball. Kentucky is absolutely must watch because you never know what you are going to get out of them. They are the most consistent or the most inconsistent team in college basketball. You watch that game against Alabama, and they may be the most exhilarating team in college basketball. That game was everything that is fun about college basketball. It was nonstop. It was up and down the floor. It reminded me of late 90s, early 2000s college basketball. It, it was not like, and the crazy thing is the North Carolina UVA game was on at exactly the same time. And it's like, the, the, it wasn't even the same sport. Those two games were not the same sport. North Carolina wins that one, 54 to 44. And Kentucky puts up 117 in its win. And it feels like John Calipari is finding the right combination, at least for the day, was finding the right combination of so guys. They had Justin Edwards with a breakout game, 28 points on 10 of 10 shooting. A huge game for Justin Edwards. Zvonimir Ivasic, big Z, the 7 2 freshman who was not, did not play until about a month ago. And he, he has a big game against Georgia in his first game out scores 13 points, uh, has a really nice game, but he's played inconsistently since then. He plays 20 minutes against Alabama, puts up 18 points. There is so much talent on this Kentucky team. The questions are, are they going to focus every night? Are they going to bring it every night? And are they going to play some defense? And that's what Kentucky will have to figure out down the stretch. I trust Tennessee still at this point much more than I do Kentucky because I know what I'm going to get out of Tennessee night in and night out. But Kentucky is must-watch, because you never know what you're going to get. I think it will be a big test for them Tuesday night, going on the road to Mississippi State to see if they can come back after a game like that at home, Rupp Arena going wild. You've done everything that you thought you could do in that game you kind of lived up to billing in that one. How do you how do you respond going on the road to Starkville on a Tuesday night against an old Miss team that grinds it out who is desperate. This is a miss sorry, not an old Miss team, a Mississippi State team, a Mississippi State team that is on the bubble right now. They're a 10 seed on bracket matrix. They need a big win like this. They're going to grind it out. You're on the road. You're coming off a huge win. How do you respond? I'm going to be locked into that one on Tuesday night. But that was a fun one in the SEC. And it was everything that you could could hope for out of a Kentucky team, out of that Kentucky team. I know Kentucky fans are frustrated right now. I've been frustrated with Kentucky ever since I bet on them against Tennessee. And they didn't play a lick of defense in that game. I, I was frustrated. I can only imagine how frustrated Kentucky fans are. But that was something to sustain you for a little bit, Cats fans. That was a a great win by Kentucky. Now let's see what they do on Tuesday night against Mississippi State and Starkville. Other game of the day, I thought, and to me it was really Baylor-Houston, Kentucky-Alabama, and this one, Wake Forest-Duke. Wake Forest gets a big-time quad one win against Duke. On Thursday, I talked about, or on Friday, I talked about how Wake Forest had beaten up recently on the middle to the bottom of the ACC, but they did not have a ton of quad one wins. They did not. They were struggling against the best of the best. And in this one, they come up with a huge home win. They were the favorite in this one. They get a huge home win over Duke. And I was so excited watching this game because, you know, Wake Forest, they, they kind of hold a weirdly special place in my heart because they are what I consider kind of the core of that 90s ACC, right? Of course, North Carolina and Duke, they're the blue bloods. They're blue bloods of the sport. They were the ones that everybody was chasing in the ACC. But when you think about the 90s, the early 2000s in the ACC, Part of what made the league so good was, yes, of course you had North Carolina and Duke, but you also had a Maryland team that was chasing a national title, eventually gets a national title. You had a Wake Forest team that was consistently in the top 25, if not the top 15. You had guys coming through that program like Tim Duncan, like Chris Paul, really, really good teams. And then he had NC State had some good years. Georgia Tech had some good years. There was so much depth in that league to compete with Duke and North Carolina. So Wake Forest holds a special place in my heart for that reason, because the ACC at that time was very comparable to me to SEC football over the last five, 10 years. I thought it was clearly the best league for an extended period of time. So much NBA talent coming through that league. So many great coaches, Hall of Fame coaches, great players, great teams in that league. And wake forest was a a core part of that an absolutely core part of what made the ACC so good. And they've been going through it for a long time, but it seems like they found the right coach now in Steve Forbes. And it was the first sellout they had in seven years. They said on the broadcast and they gave that fan base. They gave that crowd everything they could possibly cheer about. They get the 83 79 win. And, uh, Hunter Salas, their best player, he had a great game. He had a fantastic game. The Gonzaga transfer was everything he's been for them all season long. Putting up 29 points in the in the win. They also had other guys and uh, Cam Hildreth hit some big shots. Andrew Carr, their big man, hit hit some big shots, and he's a really impressive guy. I like this team. I like watching them play offense. They're a ton of fun, and they and they got a huge win. But, of course, the story of the game becomes Wake Forest rushes the court and Kyle Filipowski uh, gets gets hurt. I don't know. I, I looked earlier. I haven't seen any official report on what his injury is or, you know, if he's going to miss games, how serious it is. But, but Kyle Filipowski, Duke's uber-talented big man, I think fair to say, you know, their best player, he collides with some fans he goes down and we have this big discourse now about rushing the court in college basketball and it it just it sucks to be quite frank because i was prepared to come on here today and say how excited i was just to see this wake forest fan base excited to see that place packed to see it rejuvenated revitalized there was a, a a new energy, but it was an old energy. It was the Wake Forest that I had grown up with, and and I loved watching games there, and it was always a tough place to play. That is Wake Forest basketball to me. And now it spawns this whole conversation about court storming. So I guess I gotta give my two cents on court storming. I think it's gonna be a little bit different than some of the takes you probably heard, uh, but I think it's well-reasoned. I think it's well-thought-out. So look, I never played college basketball. I was never a player where the opposing team stormed the court on me or their opposing fan base stormed the court on me after a loss. And I was trying to scramble off the court. So I don't have that perspective, but my perspective is somebody who has grown up loving college basketball, who saw court storms as a kid at Maryland, who as a student, I probably went on the, I probably stormed the court as a student three or four times stormed the field once for, for football so I've been involved in a fair number of court storming. Now I'm at the point where I would I wouldn't dream of it at this age. I have no interest in it. It seems nuts to me to do at 35, 34, about to be 35 to storm the court. I'm not interested in doing it. But look, I'm looking at my wall right now and I have a Terrapin Club calendar here. And for the month of February, the picture on this calendar is the court filled with fans after Maryland upset Purdue at home last season. Court storming's a a part of college basketball. It's pretty fun, to be quite honest. There are very few opportunities that you can feel as much a part of the team as you do when you're a student, your team gets a huge win, and you are on the court, surrounded by fellow students, you're surrounded by, your team is on the court with you. And they're celebrating with you. I remember watching, I was at that Maryland-Purdue game last year and I was watching the court storm and had a huge smile on my face and I was loving it. And to look around and you see Julian Reese just soaking it up. Julian Reese loved it. Julian Reese was soaking it up. And we haven't heard a lot from the players who are a part of the home team that win a game and get to celebrate with thousands of their fellow students around them I think that's a pretty cool and special thing. I think court storming is a ton of fun. It, I have lifelong memories from doing it that I'll never forget. And it's something that does make college sports different and unique from pro sports. I mean, you could never storm the court in an NBA game. You could never storm the field in an NFL game. You could never storm the field at a baseball game, a uh, major league baseball game. And, you know, there there's probably, there are good reasons for it. And I hate What happened to Kyle Filipowski? I don't know what the answer is to this. I don't think out and out banning court storming is the answer because I don't think it's going to be effective. I don't know how you actually just ban court storming because it happens in a flash. It happens like that. I wish that people could just be respectful enough to give the opposing team one minute to get off the court and then go at it. Go have fun. Because it is really, really fun. But I understand there are dangers associated with it as well. I hate what happened to Kyle Filipowski. If he misses extended period of time, if he misses any time. Um, that's a problem. So, look, I, there's a lot of people out there today, yesterday, saying this is why court storming has to be banned. This is why we have to find a way to stop it immediately. And I get that perspective. I really, really do. I get it from a player's perspective that that's your domain. You shouldn't be put at risk when you're on that court. I also get from a fan's perspective that it is so much fun. That is a rare opportunity, this moment of exhilaration, this moment of exuberance where you and everybody else who cares about this team and this program like you do are celebrating with the players themselves on the court, and the players are having as much fun as you are in some cases. So I really and truly see both sides of this thing. I, I, if, it, if In an ideal world to me, we would find a way to just keep everybody in their seats, in the stands for a, a one to two minutes to just get the opposing team off the court so stuff like this doesn't happen. I don't know how realistic that is. I understand the argument that we just need to shut this down because putting any player at risk is is one too many players at risk, and I, and I completely understand that. I just want to present my perspective as somebody who hasn't played college basketball but has been to so many college basketball games, who has been a part of storming the court and has also seen – the exhilaration on the face of players on the winning team who also have that as a once-in-a-lifetime memory when they had 15,000 people, 7,000 people, whatever, surrounding them and and, and cheering them on, and uh, it's, it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime memory. So I just want to provide that perspective there on the court storm. I would be interested to hear from a player who has had a court storming occur as a winner and also as a loser. I think that would be an interesting perspective to hear from. Because So many times the the teams that get upset, nobody ever storms the court when they win at home, right? Because it's Duke, it's Carolina, it's Kansas. Those programs, they don't storm the court when they win. They expect to win. They expect to win every game at home. There is no court storming. So I would be interested to hear if there's a player out there, what's your perspective on it? What was it like when your team won and your fans stormed the court? What was it like trying to get off the court when the opposition stormed it? It's clearly much easier to get the players off the court quickly and safely when the game is not in question You know, in the last five seconds. In this instance, it was. This one came down to the very end. The buzzer hit zero. The buzzer went off and the fans poured on the court. I would love to find a way to just give the opposing team a minute to get off the court. I don't think the fines do anything. I think fines are absolutely meaningless because you look at the Tennessee Alabama football game a couple of years ago, the SEC has a rule in place for fining schools that storm the field court, whatever. And it became a big joke with Tennessee doing a GoFundMe to, to raise money for a new goalpost and, you know, whatever. The school loved it. It was a huge moment, and that's what I mean. Like, I'm sitting here looking at this calendar where the court storming of Maryland's went over Purdue is prominently featured. It's not prominently featured. It is the one and only picture for the month of February. It's the main picture on this calendar. So it's complicated. Like so many things in the world, I don't think it's cut and dry where so many people want to say you're an idiot if you think that there should ever be a court storming, and other people want to say you're an idiot if you think that court storming should be curtailed in any way. I don't see it that way. I see some that it's a, a great experience for some people. I see that it's a very scary experience for others, and I hate what happened to Kyle Filipowski. I would love to find a way to get everybody off the court safely, but also allow students, and the winning team to have that moment that will last a lifetime. So that's it. That's it for me on uh, the Wake Forest-Duke game and the court storming. A big win for Wake, picking up that Q1 win over Duke. Okay, let's look ahead to Monday night. A couple games I want to talk about here. 7 p.m., Miami goes on the road to number 10, North Carolina. And I actually want to talk about Miami here for a second. Because Miami has had one of the most disappointing seasons of anybody in the country. Miami is 15-13, and and 6-11 in the conference. Miami has not won a game since February 3rd. Miami's lost six games in a row. Six ACC games in a row. And this is a Miami team that went to the Final Four last year. This is a Miami team that went to the Elite Eight two years ago. This is a Miami team that was picked second behind Duke in the league In the preseason poll, this was not what this season was supposed to look like for Miami. So a very disappointing season for the Hurricanes. They look like they are going the wrong direction. And North Carolina has a ton to play for. North Carolina has a chance to still win the ACC to earn a number one seed. So you would expect this one to, you know, not be a blowout but you would expect North Carolina to handle business, but they're coming off a tough game. Playing Virginia is always tough. They hadn't won it against Virginia on the road in a very, very long time. They get the job done. They'll come home to the Dean Dome on Monday night. They're a 13 and a half point favorite in this one. I am staying away from it. That, that line is too big for my liking. I don't like the way Nor- Miami is going at all. They have been extraordinarily disappointing, but that's a tough turnaround and laying 13.5 is is a good number. I'm going to stay away from that one. The other game I want to talk about is one I am betting. I have two bets on this one. TCU host Baylor in a rivalry game, Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. TCU, a a 2.5-point favorite in this one. The total in this game, 148.5. I'm going to go over 148.5, and and I'm going to take TCU minus 2.5. Now, these teams met earlier in the year. They played a triple overtime thriller. TCU came out on top, barely in this one, 105-102, on the road at Foster Pavilion in triple overtime. And I'm going to take TCU because looking at the Saturday-Monday turnarounds, the Big Tens played a few of them this year, quite a few of them. There's been seven Big 12 games, home teams on the – Monday, Saturday turnaround are six and one in those games. Houston won the only game they won in overtime at Texas earlier this year. So I think it's pretty, I think it's a big deal going home on that short turnaround. Uh, Baylor was at home against Houston on Saturday. They will go to Fort Worth. You know, not the longest road trip in the world, but I think it means something. Baylor also has lost two in a row. They're coming off, they, they, they're they trying to stop this losing streak. They're trying to avoid a three-game skid. A really big game for them. But they played such an emotional game against Houston. We talked about it a lot at the top of the show. You know, they were down. They came back. It was a big, they, they had a chance to take down the top dog in the league. They had a chance to really assure themselves, to solidify themselves as a 2-3 seed and not slip onto that 4-5 seed line. That's a big deal. To me, that's the biggest jump there is, 2-3 to 4-5. It's a huge, huge deal as far as how well-equipped and prepared you are or how well-positioned you are, I should say, to advance in the NCAA tournament, being on that 2-3 line instead of that 4-5 or five line. So I see this as an emotional letdown spot for Baylor. I like TCU minus 2.5 here. And then as far as the total, I think the way TCU plays with how fast they play – how good they are at forcing turnovers. I think these are going to be two tired teams. I think Baylor possibly more tired than TCU. And I think there's going to be a lot of turnovers in this game. I think there's going to be a lot of fast break points. And that's why I like the over in this one. So give me TCU minus two and a half. Give me the over, over 148 and a half in this one. That's the show for today. It was a great weekend at College Hoops. We got another big week ahead. They're all big at this point. And I will be back on Tuesday to look at some of the midweek games, give out some bets on the Tuesday and Wednesday slate at this point. Follow me on Twitter because I'll be posting bets every day, college basketball bets every day the rest of the way. But I will be back with another show to break down what we saw on Monday, look ahead Tuesday, and look ahead to Wednesday as well. Enjoy the games this week, everybody. And until next time, keep the grill hot and the cooler cold. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.